This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I love almost everything about New York City. I love the intensity of the pace, the diversity of the people, the street signs, even the noise. When I first moved here, I was in my 20s. I'd spent endless hours sitting in the windows of cafes on Hudson Street, listening to blues at bands on 2nd Avenue, and trying to pick up boys at 2 a.m. on the rooftop of Danceteria. I always went home by myself, but as I walked across 8th Street to my apartment in Chelsea, I strutted and sashayed and imagined I was street smart and savvy and somebody. As an entry-level paste-up artist, I compared myself to the sophisticated silhouettes around me and wished for more of what I thought everyone else had. Glamorous shoes, an apartment that wasn't a tenement, a date on Saturday nights. I tried to make some extra money by freelancing, and a friend helped me get an interview for a book project. The day of the interview, I wore my favorite outfit, a gray corduroy suit with a gaucho skirt and a puffy-sleeved, button-down jacket. I had matching gray faux leather pumps that I wore so often the rubber tips on the heels had been ground down to the metal studs. This caused the shoes to make an annoying clinking noise when I walked and often caused me to slide at inopportune moments. The interview was an unremarkable one, and I walked home discouraged in the cold January afternoon. I clutched my portfolio in one hand, my handbag in another, and tried to balance myself on the icy sidewalk. But at the corner of 8th Street and University Place, smack in the middle of Greenwich Village, I slipped and fell. My portfolio went flying, the contents slid across the icy street, followed by one gray shoe, my handbag, and the last little bit of bravado that remained after my interview. What I remember next was this. An elderly man helped me up while a young woman gathered my things. The man confirmed if I was okay, then kept walking. After he was out of earshot, the woman griped about how rude he was. When I looked perplexed, she elaborated. Apparently, she assumed he had bumped into me. As I tried to clarify, a second woman approached, also questioning if I was okay. I replied again that I was. Then she inquired if she could ask us for some advice. I was still unsure of my bearings, and I was starting to get cranky, but I said yes. She motioned for us to come closer and slowly pulled a tattered wallet out of her coat pocket. Her eyes were wide, and she whispered, Look what I found. She carefully opened it up, and the three of us stared at a wallet stuffed with bills. It was more money than I had ever seen in my life. I questioned whether or not there was any identity in it. She shook her head no. The first woman thought we should give it to the police, and I nodded in agreement. But the second woman wasn't sure, and suddenly offered to share it with us. The first woman's eyes popped open, and her mouth made a soft whooshing sound. You really want to share it? Yes, she nodded. Yes, she did. We decided it was too risky to remain outside with a wallet stuffed with cash and ducked into a nearby coffee shop. We introduced ourselves. The woman who helped me up was Tina. The woman with the wallet was Mary. The two women started talking about how to divide the money and considered what the risks might be. Mary questioned whether or not the bills could be marked and wondered if we would get arrested if we deposited the money into the bank. Then Tina told us she had an uncle named Jim who was a lawyer. Perhaps he would know what to do. We agreed this was a good idea, and she went to a payphone to call him. Left alone with Mary, 
I began to imagine how much was in the wallet and all of the wonderful things I could buy with it. Tina came back excited and explained that Uncle Jim believed that the cash was likely drug money and the bills were probably marked. But he wanted to help us. He would exchange the money for us. In return, he asked us to contribute some of our own money so he wouldn't be the only one taking a risk. I wasn't sure about this and shook my head no. I couldn't do that. But Tina and Mary were willing. They looked at me hopefully, and then I wavered. I didn't want to let them down. Together, we walked to a nearby ATM, and Tina and Mary withdrew $500. I only had $400 in the bank, and I took it out. Mary asked to count it and placed it in a teller envelope, but I wanted to hold on to it, so she gave it back, and I put it safely in my pocket. We walked to Uncle Jim's office and decided to take the elevator up one at a time in case anyone was watching us. Tina went first and gave Jim the wallet and her envelope of money. Ten minutes later, she came down smiling, clutching a new envelope close to her chest. I went up next. When I got to the floor, I was sweating. I asked the receptionist for Jim, and she looked up, squinted, and asked, Who? I repeated, Jim, Tina's Uncle Jim. She shook her head, apologized, and told me there was no one there by that name. I took the elevator back downstairs, but Tina and Mary were gone. I ran into a nearby deli to see if they were there, but they weren't. I fingered the envelope in my pocket. It was still there. I didn't understand. What had happened? Why did they leave? It was nearly dark, and I decided to take a taxi home. I sat in the warm car reviewing what had happened. Maybe they were trying to scam me. I sighed and congratulated myself on not letting Mary hold on to my money. When we arrived at my apartment, I opened the teller envelope to pay the cab fare. I reached in for a bill, and as I handed it to the driver, I saw the bill was newspaper. I frantically pulled out all of the contents of the envelope and realized all of the bills were newspaper. Mary switched the envelopes. I was tricked. I was conned. I never told anyone what happened that day. In the decades since, I discovered I was duped by what is called the pigeon drop, one of the oldest scams in the book. I look back on it now in embarrassment and humiliation and realize I wasn't really conned by Tina and Mary. I duped myself. I see how much I was driven by hubris and arrogance, how much I wanted more than I had, and how I was motivated by my desire and my greed. Welcome to the 99th broadcast of Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Gary Hustwit. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Gary Hustwit is an independent filmmaker based in New York and London. He has produced six feature documentaries, including I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, the award-winning film about the band Wilco, and a tour film about the band Death Cab for Cutie. In 2007, Gary made his directorial debut with Helvetica, a documentary about graphic design and typography. Helvetica had its world premiere at the South by Southwest Film Festival in March of 2007, and he has since screened the film in over 200 cities worldwide. In 2008, the film was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. Gary's latest documentary, Objectified, is a film about our complex relationship with manufactured objects, and it examines personal expression, identity, consumerism, and the people who design the products. It has just been released to rave reviews. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Debbie. Oh, congratulations on all of the wonderful reviews for Objectified. I've seen it, and it is fantastic. Thanks. That was also the best um, reading of my bio that I think I've ever ever heard. Really? <laughs> well, I, I edited it ever so slightly, but only because well, I no, wanted I mean, to get to the interview. <laughs> your, your voice was the best reading. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to get the... I'm edit that out of this broadcast and just put it on my site <laughs> instead of letting people read it. So 
I read that that something that wasn't in your in your bio actually that punk rock inspired you to get into filmmaking. Is that true? Um, I, I guess so in a in a sort of roundabout way because I think when I was in college, all my friends were in bands and. I had a kind of record label when I was in college and, and basically got kicked out of college several times. Really? Why did you get kicked out of college? Um, most Well, just because I would leave in the middle of the semester and, and go on tour with a friend's band. Or so you were MIA in college. Yeah. And I just wasn't scholastically inclined, I guess. But all that touring and independent record releasing and promoting shows and things like that ended up kind of being my, my education in a way. And then I, I, I started working with um, a label called SST, which is yes. a kind of legendary, legendary punk rock label in Los Angeles. And kind of that, that I guess, the sort of do-it-yourself um, ethic of, of, of punk has informed everything I've done since then, including the filmmaking. Now, one of the common denominators, I think, of all of my guests is that when they explain something that they've done, they always say something like, and then I started to work at this punk rock label, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or then I started to work at, at Pentagram. And I'm like, oh, well, give me some detail. How did you get to SST Records? How did that happen? How did you get this position? Um, I started when I had helped a, a bunch of friends release their own records. And this is in the mid-80s mid when there wasn't an Internet. And to find out information like what's the college radio station in Madison, Wisconsin, or what's the coolest record store in Phoenix, or, or whatever. You, you just had to talk to other people. You had to, you had to do the research. You had to actually right. write letters to people and, and make phone calls. And Back I had in sort the of, day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I had sort of amassed this um, pretty big database of all this information and, and had figured out how to put out records. So I, I, I actually wrote a book called Releasing an Independent Record, which was kind of like a kind of a, a manual about how to start your own record label. And that so, somehow that got the attention of the people at SST, or I can't remember exactly how, how it happened, but they offered me a job there in distribution. And then I kind of learned even, even you know, more about kind of independent media there. And then um, when I left SST, I started publishing other books. Other people had ideas for books, both kind of music-focused, but also fiction and Poetry and, and nonfiction, so I just started publishing books. So, that I had so this you just started publishing books. Like, how does one go about starting? I mean, now um, you can go to Lulu and publish a book. Yeah, one one went to Kinkos and Xeroxed them off and, oh. and comb bound them by hand. So they and were like bookzines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's actually when I got my first Macintosh too, which was another when was big this? What year point. was this? this? Like '88 when I probably got my first Mac. And I didn't have any kind of design background. I didn't really have any kind of art background at all. But, um, it, you know, I was really kind of empowered by the, the ease of, of, of use of, like, you know, PageMaker 1.0 and mm -hmm. all these programs that, yeah. that we had. And that's kind of how I got interested in type, really, by designing these books that I was putting out or other people were putting out through through my press. Um, and, you know, just kind of self-taught uh, uh myself a lot about typography and, and then got into other kind of design movements and just have been a fan of, uh, of design for the past uh, 20 years. But before your, and we'll talk a lot about your design films, but you produced six films, uh, six music-oriented films, the film for Wilco, the film for Death Cab for Cutie. You also did a uh, film for Robert Moog. Yeah. So what, what made you decide, so you started working in a punk rock station and then you were publishing books and... How did you get to filmmaking? Um, really through, well, both through just, you know, my, my love of, of music, but also um, I bought a DVD player, and I think it was like 1999, mm -hmm. and just sort of became Wow, obsessed. a DVD player in 1999? Yeah, and I sort of became obsessed with... late in the uh, game. <laughs> <laughs> late. Okay, late. That's easy. Um, but uh, there was nothing, you know, you couldn't get any good films or independent films or definitely not any kind of like alternative music documentaries or anything, so... At that time, I, I just kept thinking, you know, someone needs to start like an independent record label, but but for film. Mm -hmm. So in 2001, I started uh, Plexifilm, which is an uh, indie DVD label, and that you still have today. Yeah, it's still 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 going. Um, the first thing that that kind of came across our desk when we were out looking for films to release was the the Wilco documentary, 
and um, which became just a huge project. Uh, we, you know, we got involved, helped the, um, you know, it took like an eight, 18 months basically to, um, to, to shoot that film. Now, how did you get to the band Wilco? I mean, if I was going out to make a, a film about, uh, about a band, I'd, I'd have to, like, talk to my brother. How did you get to well, the band Wilco? In this case, I had some friends who were just like the world's biggest Wilco fans, and they had heard that Sam Jones, who's the director of that film, had started this project. And then I, I basically got in touch with Sam um, just because we were looking for things to release. And, and, and it basically was <laughs> the situation was like they needed help because what started as a three-week shoot of just the recording of the record turned into an 18-month film about everything that happened after the band uh, recorded the record and but getting dropped by the label and everything else. So I came on as an executive producer and helped get the money to kind of finish the film and get it released in theaters and distributed. So how were you able to convince them that you could be the director of this film, given that you hadn't ever directed the anything before? A producer. Well, because I think they, they needed help. Okay. <laughs> and at that point, um, they were sh that was shot on film, which is you know insanely expensive when you're shooting 100 hours of, of documentary so um, and then you know we had this uh, this company and we were we were you know acquiring films and releasing other th other uh, documentaries and just uh, you know got involved in some other productions like the Moog film we released that um, they might be giants film gigantic uh, just lots of, of cool stuff so uh, I think they, they wanted to be part of that that's incredible what a, what an extraordinary journey yeah, it's um, <laughs> it was uh, interesting. That that film, I mean, it it was um, I mean, it it did really well in the theaters, and and if it hadn't, that, that would have been a very short film career. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? How one thing like that could make a life, could change a life in such a profound manner. Definitely. What do you think you'd have been if you weren't a filmmaker? Um, now, God, uh, I have no idea. An architect? I really? Know. <laughs> no. Gary, we have a caller. Uh, we have uh, Gregory from New Jersey. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. About 10 days ago. Really? Watching it. I'd never heard of it before, and I, it was an episode of the Golden Girls. And it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Where well, everyone should learn everything. <laughs> R.I.P. So, uh, yeah, I'd never heard of it. That's the saddest thing I ever heard. Um, and I thought you were going to get away with it, too, and not have the newspaper. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's um, okay. Gary, that's I, my first question is, um, what, what did you, before you were MIA in school, what did you go to school to study? Um, I was a journalism major, and not because I, I was, you know, into telling stories or anything, but I, I, writing came came easy for me at that point, and it seemed like the easiest major. I think there was the least amount of credits you needed to, to graduate. <laughs> that was the only reason I did it, and even even that. And I was I, I went to San Diego State University, which is not exactly a it's a very hard college to get kicked out of, basically. Isn't that where, isn't that where David Carson went to school? Um, David went to state or he went to UCSD, but oh, he, okay. he was in yeah. San Diego doing this surfer magazines. And right. Well, I mean, you ended up telling stories anyway in your own way. Yeah. Um, now, I, I'm curious to know, what do you, how do you think that um, online broadcasting, not just YouTube, but things like Coldcast TV, how do you think that, sh that has or is going to change filmmaking? Good question. Well, I mean, in terms of access to, um, you know, just such a huge variety of, 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 of films and video, I think, I think it's, it's only going to keep, um, you know, evolving and being the way that we get filmed content, whether it's, you know, now on our laptops or things like, you know, um, all the different kind of set-top uh, boxes to, to get Internet video. So it, it's, it's just going to keep um, converging and... Uh, but I, but I think it's a, it's a good thing. It, it takes the, you know, the, the middleman out of that relationship mm -hmm. between the filmmaker and the audience, which is something that I've always tried to, um, you know, do. And I, I think it's more filmmakers should be taking advantage of it um, rather than kind of going the traditional route of uh, going through a distributor. I think. And and you know, I guess that really is is um, going to change the way the traditional. Um, hires and firers in the industry um, deal with filmmakers. I mean, but in a positive way. I think as a filmmaker, you'd agree that that's a positive thing for so many people who want to make film, and especially now where you don't have to process legitimate, you know, just real film, where you have digital um, uh, 
cameras and you're able to produce things, uh, it, it gives a lot more people a lot more opportunity to be seen. Sure. That sure. normally would not be seen. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's, you, know, you know, we've seen it happen with music um, and just the access to digital recording, and we've seen it happen with graphic design, too. Right. Um, that sort of democratization. And, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm always of the opinion that the more people um, learn about the making of these things, film or, or music or, 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 or anything, that the more they appreciate it when it's, when it's done well. So I, I'm not one of the people that thinks that, the democratization of, um, of digital film tools is somehow going to ruin everything, and you know, YouTube is evil. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I agree. I really do. So I'm, I'm delighted, and uh, I look forward to seeing your work. Okay, thanks. Thank thanks you. for calling, Gregory. Um, speaking of which, I read today uh, on the internet that David Hockney is now creating art on his iPhone. Really? And sending it to people. And I kind of love that idea. So tell us, tell us how you made the transition from making movies about music and musicians to making movies about design. Well, I mean, the process is probably really similar. Um, to me, like Helvetica is just a music documentary, but about a font. Mm. <laughs> well, music does play a very prominent role in both of your films. Definitely, definitely. You know, you know, it's it's uh, producing a music documentary and and directing one are, are kind of like two different things. I think at this, at least at the independent level. Uh, in was, what way? Well, in the work I was doing at Plexi, I was really enabling other filmmakers to get their visions out there, mm-hmm. and and learning a, a ton. I mean, I, I learned so much from all the filmmakers that 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 we had a chance to work with. So Helvetica was just sort of my geeky side project. It was the, the film that I wanted to see as, as, a, as an, an appreciator of, of design and, and type. Why, and why Helvetica, not Bedoni or Peña or <laughs> any well, of the other marvelous fonts it out just, there? It just seemed to work as a vehicle to be able to talk to, to, to everyone. There didn't, didn't seem to be as much... Um, Love and hatred of of Bedoni, for instance. <laughs> or, um, you know. uh, so so it, it it worked as a as a as a structure, I think. And also mm-hmm. the fifty years um, was a really interesting. I mean, from fifty seven to you know oh seven, I think was a, a pretty amazing transformation in terms of of design um, uh, stylistically, but also technologically. So it kind of fit the bill. You know, I'd seen Lars Mueller's uh, book. Um, Helvetica homage to a typeface, which I really loved, and um, and I had to get Lars in the film too, mm-hmm. p- pointing at things, which um, which he's so great in. But um, yeah, that was. Uh, so you had an idea. You wanted to make a movie about a typeface that was celebrating its 50th <laughs> anniversary. Um, then what? How, did, how does one go about making something like that happen? I I just. <laughs> I, I it's funny because I'm my excitement level for for the the films is just the the, the day I think of them it, it's sort of peaking right then, and um, I type up a paragraph and and uh, that pretty much becomes the film and I, and I I I think the night I thought of Helvetica, I emailed uh, Massimo Vignelli. I just found his email online. It's on his website, and uh, sent him an email and told him you know what I wanted to do and he agreed and. I think with projects like this, if you if you can just get one person to agree, you can kind of you know it the, is mom- really the momentum how that just happens. goes yeah. after that. So yeah. so everyone else, everyone wanted to be in it. I don't think you know. I think it's a, a tragedy that people aren't aren't banging on his door to get him on on film or you know Matthew Carter or yeah. these amazing amazing um, artists. But uh, but everyone was excited that, that they got to talk about something that they loved um, for a film. So. Yeah, there's a lot of passion in this movie about a typeface. Definitely. Um, I have a, a bunch more questions for you about Helvetica as well as Objectified, but we have another caller on the line. We have Elizabeth from Manhattan. Elizabeth, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are you? We're Hi. good, thank you. Hi, Gary. Hi. Um, my question's about Objectified. Shoot. While you were making it, was there anything you discovered about your habits and your identity as a consumer that you had never before realized? That's a good question. I, I, I think I, I – it's funny because I'm not sure if my attitudes towards the manufactured objects around me um, – if my attitudes were changing two years ago, which is kind of why I wanted to make the film, or if 
if over the course of the two years making the film, um, that has changed my perceptions. But um, I, th I think I'm much more considered in, in terms of my consumerism now. Uh, I think I, 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 like a lot of people, kind of didn't really think too much about the things that I, that I bought, um, other than just like I like them and maybe they were on sale. <laughs> that was about as far as it went. And I think it's um, so much of it is, is, is kind of about committing to, to these things and, and not having that kind of mentality that, yeah, you know, uh, I can just get rid of it in two years or throw it away or, or, or whatever if it breaks. Um, and just kind of, I don't know, taking care of the things that, 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 that you, you have. Um, there seems there's two kind of categories of, of, ob of manufactured objects. It seems like there's the tech stuff which we know is going to be um, obsolete or broken or, you know, we want to upgrade it in a couple of years. And then there's things like, you know, desks and tables and chairs, which really we should just buy the ones that we're going to be happy with for the rest of our lives and just yeah. kind of commit and, and hopefully that, that are designed and, and made well enough that they will outlive us. They should outlive us. And so that just kind of, I, I think, thinking a little bit more about, about the things around me in those terms is probably the, the um, one, one thing that I came away with. And then just an appreciation for all the work that goes into the simplest, you know, object, like a toothbrush or something. <laughs> it's amazing. The, the idea story about the toothbrush is quite astonishing. But it's just, uh, you know, I, again, I think it's something that people take for granted. And when they hear about the, the work and the kind of thought and the creativity that goes into just these kind of random everyday objects, it gives them a little bit more appreciation of them and lets them be a little bit more educated consumer, too. When you see the process behind something, I think it, it you know, changes the way you look at it. Well, I think also the same can be very true for typeface. Definitely. Um, thank you for calling Design Matters. Thank you. Elizabeth. Um, Gary, let's just go back for a few moments um, to Helvetica. Um, on your website, and I believe it's HelveticaFilm.com, is that correct? Uh, you state, since millions of people see and use Helvetica every day, I guess I just wondered why. How did a typeface drawn by a little-known Swiss designer in 1957 become one of the most popular ways for us to communicate our words 50 years later? And so my question to you is, is that question, how did that happen? I, that, was, that was what I wrote the first night that I thought of the film. Um, I really don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> it just seemed like an interesting question at the so, time. So, I but why all that ago? Why, why do you think that this is well, a, the most po one of the most popular ways for us to communicate? Oh, God, there's, there's, there's a, a ton of different Just reasons, watch the movie, but, right, Deb? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but um, some of them, um, you know, aesthetic and some of them technological in terms of the way that, that Helvetica was kind of distributed back in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. um, the decision to put it on the linotype machine, which at that point was, was the dominant typesetting machine in newspapers and magazines around the country. Um, things like it getting adopted, although it's kind of a... a a uh, circuitous path of it getting adopted is the New York transit system uh, typeface. But um, and why do you why do you smile and 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 well, there was say a, that with such glee? In there your was face. a big article. <laughs> there have been a few. There was an article recently. I think it was in the AIGA uh, journal about the the that Helvetica is sort of the typeface of the New York subway system, but yet it's not. It started out as accidents grotesque, and then it mm -hmm. has gone through a bunch of different transformations so that if you walk into a subway station, you see kind of a, a, a mishmash now of different... Um, a ...sans serifs, yeah. But, I mean, that, that I think, I think at, the, at the moment that I thought of the film, I, I was probably in the subway looking around and just looking at all the Helvetica and then just kind of popping up on, you know, at a station and going outside and seeing a logo or, you know, um, just, just starting to notice all the type in, in my environment and, mm -hmm. and then also noticing that a lot of it was Helvetica. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how much you realize you don't notice when you become aware of something? Yeah. And it's interesting. I think <clears throat> the, um, the act of watching the film f for a lot of people, it, 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 is, it is kind of that same, um, same thing. You're looking around the frame, and there's a word in Helvetica, and then you see it, and the word says something, so that's a message. And then there's 
the context around it, people walking or doing something. And, and then uh, here's the next frame, and then it's find the Helvetica. Where is it? Oh, right. there it is. Yeah. That repetition of that little game, it's kind of like this where's Waldo uh, thing. Um, when If you do that for 80 minutes in the course of, 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 of a movie, when you walk out of the theater, you're still in the movie. You, you see a word, and you look at it. And mm-hmm. you, so that was a... Um, I could stay with you forever. I, I, and it has. I've gotten some... some uh, not angry emails, but some interesting emails from people who say they can't stop looking for <laughs> fonts now. So. Well, one of, one of the questions that, that you pose in the movie is about how much storefronts today might look the same in Minneapolis or Melbourne or Munich. And I, I recently uh, heard Karim Rashid speak about a very similar topic, and Karim is also in Objectified, about how airports all look exactly the same now, and you see the same stores and all the same shops and many of the same people, and and I'm wondering how you feel about this uh, broadening of uh, aesthetics globally, this, this this generalization now that we all have about the way things look. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, you can say the same thing about almost any, you know, you can say the same thing about art and culture and movies and, and just the, that sort of globalization of, of, of all those things. Um, is that because of something like YouTube? Because we all see so much of the same stuff now? Well, it's because of the Internet, just because we can, we, you know, those sort of, you know, trends or, or movements spread around so quickly. I don't, you know, it, it, it's hard. I, I can kind of see both sides of, of the, um, of the uh, argument. I mean, if someone's in Australia uh, and, and all the, the street signs in Melbourne are in, this Swiss font from 1957, it doesn't really make a lot of sense if they have mm. their own sort of local kind of traditions or um, typefaces that maybe have that kind of site-specific character. Um, why not, you know, keep those and, 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 and uh, you know, use those mm-hmm. rather than import some Swiss, you know... Uh, <laughs> It's not evil, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, I do indeed. Well, let's let's talk about your new movie. Um, it's just been released, Objectified. Yeah, it premieres tonight at the IFC Center here in New York. Congratulations, and thank you for doing the interview on such a big day in your life. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Um, and it's a very, um, it, it's a it's a title that has uh, a number of different meanings. But this isn't about women or using sex to sell goods and services. Um, I've, I've, from what I understand, you've been asked that several times. Uh, you've described the film as about our complex relationship with manufactured objects and, by extension, the people who design them. It's a look at the creativity at work behind everything from toothbrushes to tech gadgets. It's about the designers who re-examine, re-evaluate, and reinvent our manufactured environment on a daily basis. About personal expression, identity, consumerism, and sustainability. I, I wrote it's a that. Very big title. I wrote very that, big about. <laughs> I wrote that, that paragraph the, uh, the night that I that, Oh, isn't that too. funny? Yeah. Picked both of those out. <laughs> so, so why the title? The three-part question. Why this title? Why this topic? Why this movie now? Okay. Why this title? Let's start with that. Well, you know, it was hard. It was it was definitely more difficult than than with Helvetica. There wasn't really anything I, else I could call. Helvetica, um, right? Now the this movie. Is, well, you could have got a movie about a typeface. <laughs> I don't know. But it just that that just was a no-brainer. Okay. Um, Objectify was a little a little harder. I, I, I probably went through three or four months of kind of kicking around different ideas for it. I was obviously about objects, so I was trying to kind of get that into the title, and then the whole kind of concept of the other definition of, of objectified, which is to take you know, abstract thought and, and make it into something tangible, like mm-hmm. a sculptor who's putting their creativity into a tangible object. So that seemed to fit, and, and it also, um, I thought it would look really cool on a T-shirt, which is my other um, rationale for picking a film title. Um, I just thought it would be cool just walking around with a shirt that said objectified on it. Uh-huh. Um, and what, what was the second part of that question? The second part of the question is why this topic and why this movie now? Why this topic? It's just another thing that I, another subject that I'm I'm kind of obsessed with, and, and something that, that that I wanted to see a film about, um, and that's kind of the, the you know in a nutshell the the at least my process for for doing these films. It still is that your screener. Yeah, it still is about I want to watch films about design, and I I like 
the idea of going into a theater with a thousand people and watching Dieter Rams on, on you know, <laughs> 60 feet wide. Yeah, um, I, I, I love that too. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, I'm just kind of a, a, a design geek too, but, but um, yeah, I want to I see these films and I want to I know more about who these people are and why they do what they do and what the process is and, and what's my relationship to them um, through these objects that they make that I have in my life. So what did you know, our first caller asked us about the change in your relationship with objects pre-movie, post-movie. Um, what is the biggest thing that surprised you about the way that human beings interact with their objects? Huh. Um, well, I, I, I think that, that there's some interesting things happening um, unconsciously. With, I, I like to look at what people are doing, the whole like touching your cell phone while it's in your pocket or mm. fidgeting it with, with it while it's on the table. I like those kind of um, unconscious uh, acts. And then in the film... Um, the Why do you like those kinds of unconscious I, I don't know. I just, just kind of interesting. I, I, I like to observe people, and, 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 and I like to see those. Because, I mean, those are the, the actions that are kind of, you know, probably more true to a person's personality or their character or what they're about. What do you think it says about a person when they do that? Um... I have no idea, <laughs> but it's, I think it's interesting from a design perspective. Like someone like Naoto Fukasawa, who you know we got to go to Tokyo and mm-hmm. interview him, who who really has has become um, an expert at, at sort of observing that sort of behavior, uh, and also people using objects in ways that they weren't necessarily meant to be used, but then incorporating that. Um, into the design of something. Yeah, I love when people use matchbooks now to steady a table in a restaurant so that it doesn't wobble. Yeah, he's got a, a, just a, a lot of his stuff has that sort of other level of kind of interaction and sort of a humor to it, too. Um, so that, that's something I, I, I like. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm still just sort of really curious about the world around me and um, using a, a, a camera to, uh, to document it. This, I, I talked about this before. I went to that um, William Eggleston uh, photography exhibit that was mm-hmm. at the Whitney uh, last month or a couple months ago. And the idea that you could just take a, you could take a photo of what was on someone's mantle or, or some stuff on a, on a coffee table um, and with no people in the photo, and, and you could get so much information and learn so much about whoever the owner of that stuff's um, life was just from their things. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting um, idea and, and something that I tried to um, you know, pursue in the film a little bit, too. I think you also are, are very capable in, in the world we're living in today uh, to be able to discover those things just by the things that people are wearing. Sure. Not even the things that they, but the objects that they own, but yeah. just their, what, whatever they have on them or even in the way that they um, carry themselves. Sure. And, and I find that really fascinating now because we make such fast assumptions about each other through these telegraphic signals. Sure, but we're, but we're communicating. I mean, we're, 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 we're expressing ourselves through our haircut or the clothes that we're wearing or mm-hmm. the font that we like. Or, or we're expressing <laughs> what we want people to think about ourselves. Or, or we're telling ourselves a story about who we, who we want to be, right. who we think we are. Yeah. I mean, people are always asking me, what do, I, what do I think is the definition of a brand? And, you know, the standard definition is, oh, it's a premise of an experience, blah, blah, blah. But I really think it's a projection. It's the ultimate projection of your hopes and your dreams and your fantasies about what you want people to believe about you in that experience with that brand. And, and in many ways, I think that we do the same thing with our objects, which are also obviously brands. I think that having these things a part of our lives makes us feel certain ways. Do you think that's a good thing? Or do you think it's a bad thing? Um, you know, I, I think it's a it's a good thing if it enables us to do something more than than we could without it, mm-hmm. um, and then that ends up kind of being, I guess, my definition of what good design is. Um, which is what? What is your what is your definition? Which is again, it, it, it's enabling me to do something. The, the, I, I think of a lot of the objects in my life in a weird way as as like tools. They're either tools to enable me to be more creative or make films or communicate on a wider uh, scale or 
um, or, or those things, or they're tools for, for fun, for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the objects in my life, they've got to be one, kind of on one side or the other, and they've got to do their job really well. There's no kind of middle ground for me. One of, one of the most startling and heart-wrenching parts of Objectified yeah. was when you showed the, the landfills full of garbage, <clears throat> full of rejected oh, the old... Oh, reci- the e-recycling. Yes, yeah, The yes. e-recycling stuff. And then, and then, yeah, it's funny. We showed a lot of... I mean, our studio is in, is in Greenpoint, and we showed a lot of just the, the walk from the subway uh, to our, our offices... Just every day, and in, in you know, in most of New York, you just see televisions and vacuum cleaners and every type of manufactured object. I mean, that was amazing. That street. was amazing. <laughs> that I mean, there was a, I questioned whether it could be real. Was that something that you <laughs> manufactured? Let's put out all the garbage we have and take wonderful films. It just became a ritual. Just bringing the camera when I went into work because I, every morning I would find something interesting, like an old stereo on the sidewalk right. or things that were. I'm sure probably totally usable and functional, but um, but that and then I also you'd see all the boxes for the new version <laughs> right next to me. You'd see an old so, tube yeah. television, and then you see a box for a new flat screen sitting next to each other. So why do you think we need so much? Why do you think that we need so well, much? Well, I, th- I think that's probably the point is we don't we don't need so much. Well, why do you think we think we need so much? <sighs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it's. Um, in some ways, I'm sure it's it's kind of a, a a measure of you know a certain level of success if we can if we can get more things or have the best things around us. Um, I think that we're 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 naturally attracted to the new to like to novelty. Um, it's funny. I I, I uh, we filmed a lot in in the in the movie. We filmed at this gallery in Paris called Colette. That's very trendy, um, you know, gold-plated iPods and all this kind of stuff wow. in these glass cases. I mean, it's just like the, the trendiest place. Is, you that, is the Damien Hirst skull and, there? And all that. That is exactly what it is. It's just like <laughs> painfully, um, painfully cool. And we were shooting people's expressions while they were looking at the, the stuff in the glass cases. And um, the expression on their face, a, a, a friend of, of mine also just has a one-year-old, and to see her expression when she's looking at a ball or, or anything. Something sparkly. Exactly. And, and look at these people's expression in, in Colette. It's the exact same look on their faces. And what is that look? How can I you describe it's it? It's this, this, this fascination and this desire. And, and it's orgasmic, I think. <laughs> but I think it's, it's organic. I think it's, it's hardwired into us, probably from, you know, back when we needed to, you know, you saw a, a really beautiful flower and that maybe meant that there was food or it was, you know, Good water or something like that. Mm, I think it's I really, yeah, or, I, or you know, this rock works better to pound something than this other rock does. So you really want that rock, and you know. And, and I, I, I somehow try to console myself with that notion when I want something new. I mean, I think is it hardwired into our DNA? Is it something that is part of our survival of the fittest, our basic instincts somehow? And 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 I cannot, as much as I I shop, reconcile the idea that that just because I feel better for this moment, this brief moment, having this very temporary thing, this little fix, somehow is sustainable. And forget the sustainability of the planet, but the sustainability of my mood. You know, that doesn't last. It never lasts. Yeah. And we just keep needing more and more. And I and I wonder how we can. Resolve that in our own humanity. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the beginning of the kind of I don't know 20th century, like industrial revolutions in full swing, it's it's more about having things. Period. Like nobody has a refrigerator in 1930. Right. And then it just becomes about oh well, there are these things, they're big breakthroughs, and you know I want to have them. Then it sort of kind of goes from there to maybe. Of uh, the lug- the idea of luxury, like oh well, I don't want I want the best of what I can get a television set, but I want the biggest or the most color or whatever it is. Right. Um, and then it starts kind of evolving probably to price to just I want the cheapest now. I want you know everything is just about as good as everything else. I mean, television sets are <laughs> you know for the most part all pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it becomes okay, well price or or um, styling or, or or whatever. So so I think we've we've gotten to the point now that 
this model that we've <laughs> made of, of continuing to, to manufacture, um, you know, objects and uh, it just we've, we've sort of reached the, the end of, of, of where it, um, you know, is, is, is workable. I well, think. it's interesting. We measure the mood of our country by how much we shop. Oh, my God, yeah. And and what's what's uh, unfortunate is now it's 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 it, you know this could probably be a really good time to try to reevaluate the way our our economy and and uh, the country is so um, you know uh, so dependent on consumerism and consumer growth. But if you if you try to say anything now, I think <laughs> the, about uh, having people shop less, I think it would not be greeted with a with a lot of uh, enthusiasm. No, I read yesterday about how um, elderly people are about to be receiving some economic stimulus from the government and that they're all going to be getting $250. Yeah. And the big question was, will they spend it? Yeah. Will they spend it or will they keep it? And and people are truly hoping, economists are, are hoping that, that they will that this money will be spent and put back into the economy. And it's scary, <laughs> really scary. We have another caller. We have Isabel from New York. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Gary. Hi. I'm really sorry to hear about the money situation, but I'm glad you have. Um, <laughs> it was a long time ago. That was wisdom. You got wisdom <laughs> I out did, of that. I did. It now worth, I got a story, it was right? worth the 400 Yeah, 26 years ago. <laughs> Well, Gary, my question is really kind of um, light. It's not a deep design question or anything, but since Helvetica has been screened by so many people all across the world, do you get recognized on the street or at design <laughs> function? That question. Um, You're a celebrity. I, yeah. I, 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 I got recognized on the streets of San Francisco um, a few weeks ago when we did the screenings there. But um, to qualify that, it was in front of an Apple store. So that didn't seem like a <laughs> in front big of the temple. stretch. Exactly. They're like, oh, there's the guy who made the movie. Um, but, but, but no. And I want to know, how actively do people participate in giving you feedback? Like, do they email you and get upset or people outraged do. or the, the offer? Q, it's really the Q&As at the screenings, and, and which ah. is so, so – um, for me is such a big part of this because a lot of times I don't really understand even why um, the reasons that I'm making the film um, and it, it's all so like, like you know we just finished the film up this film a month ago and a lot of these questions are still swirling around in, in my head and going out and showing it to people and, and answering their questions and getting their opinions on it um, really kind of helps me put it into context too put the film um, uh, into context for for you know as to my reasons for 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 making the film, so that's the best thing. I mean, uh, but people do write, and and obviously they're film reviewers, and everybody's a reviewer now. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like <laughs> you know you can't just put it out there as a gift. Oh, it has there's to like be you know, 140 character reviews on on Twitter all day long. Well, well, thank you for that, and, and congratulations on Objectified. And speaking of Twitter, do you Twitter to your loyal fans? Do you say what you're working on or just random ruminations? Yeah. I, okay. I've, I've, I've started doing that, um, but, but mainly as a, uh, you know, just to let people know about, about screenings and stuff. I'm not like, hmm, broccoli. Steve some <laughs> broccoli now. <laughs> I tend to keep it pretty um, just focused on the films, but... Last night, I, I had a screening in um, in Cleveland, and I was at LaGuardia, and I was delayed like, for like five hours to the point where I was going almost going to miss the screening. And I happened to to um, do a, a, a tweet about about that that I was stuck at the airport, and I had the film with me, so the event really couldn't go on. And suddenly, everybody there knew about it, and then they were kind of following my, you know, I got on the plane. I'm like, okay, I'm on the plane, you know, I'll be there. And so when I got there, everybody kind of had had followed the whole the whole story, and. I didn't even have, at that point, the organizer's phone number with me, so Twittering about it actually was the most efficient way to, to let people know that I was going to make it, and, you know, uh, it was kind of an interesting moment. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Gary. Good Thank you, Isabel. Thanks, Thanks for calling Bye. in. So what do you think about this fascination with Twitter now? I mean, do you think that it's 
do you think it's about sharing? Do you think that it's absurd? Do you think that it's narcissistic? All of the above? None of the above? Well, you know, it depends on the on the use. I think. I mean, again, I'm not so much into like twittering about my personal, you know, what I'm wearing or I don't know what I'm eating or just like things you mean like that. Fabulous that. T-shirt. You have yeah, on. exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I don't know. There, there's a. It, it, I think it's a kind of a, this extension of um, of the need for community and just need for you know to 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 you know. Have people in your lives and have them, you know, care about what you're doing or care about what they're doing. Right. Talk um, about the democrat, democrat, democratization yeah. of connection. I mean, yeah. I'm following Susie Orman. I yeah. think <laughs> if she's the one that's doing all the tweeting, who knows? Um, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting because the, there's, you know, you have the kind of traditional sense of a community being really geographically based, and 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 I, I think, you know, when I think of who, who, what my, who my community is, it's it's all these friends that are that are in different cities all over the world who I maybe don't see every, you know, once every six months, but I'm, I'm still in contact with and kind of, you know, keeping tabs on them and, and vice versa. So so it's an extension of, 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 of that need, I think. So, Gary, we have a, only a few more moments left of, of our broadcast. So what's your next movie? <laughs> is it another design movie? Um, there is another design movie in the The Trifecta, works. the trilogy. The trilogy, the... the Star Wars of design. Um, Can you give us some? I, it's it's hints? it's really it's too top early. To, it's too early to talk about it. And I'm, it's top secret, but I'm still kind of you know watching it in my head right now. But um, will it be another documentary? Yeah, it'll, do you, it'll do you be, see yourself going beyond documentaries? Um, I I would love to do a, a fiction, um, you know, a narrative film at some point. I, I think I still need to learn. You know, so much about about the craft of, of filmmaking. It's um, you know. It's a language, and, and I feel like I'm just learning how to, to speak in it. So um, I want to keep probably do another, I don't know, five or six docs and then try a fiction film. <laughs> but um, but I'm, I'm, I'm totally hooked, so I'm going to make as many films as I can. Well, you your, know, your movies are, life, are so. totally addictive. So oh, thanks. thank you for being here. Thank you for this marvelous work that you're putting out there for all of us, these wonderful gems. Uh, thank you for coming to... Uh, the broadcast today, and good luck with the opening tonight. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you. Well, I'd like to let everybody know that we've come to the end of our broadcast today. I'd like to thank the wonderful Gary Husband for joining me today. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me next week for our 100th broadcast, believe it or not, 100 episodes of Design Matters will be in the can is trend forecaster Dee Dee Gordon. We will also have a couple of special guests coming next week as well. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.